thank you so much for checking out the Connect Church podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired by this week's sermon. So let's jump right in and check out this week's message. What are you doing showing up like this on a Sunday morning? We hadn't planned on you guys coming much at all today. and A lot of folks out at the lake, but we are... We are so glad you are here, and, and just from our team years, happy 4th of July weekend, excited to celebrate uh, this nation that we live in, that God has blessed us uh, to live in together, and to continue today in our Nehemiah series. Now, as we celebrate what is the very birth of our nation, we celebrate not only its birth, but we also celebrate freedom from Great Britain's tyrannical rule. The freedom that you and I, we have the joy of celebrating in today. I'm reminded of what Abraham Lincoln wrote in his Gettysburg Address. A celebration point that we have a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And I love what he puts on the end of that. That shall not perish from this earth. We celebrate freedom that was secured by the brave sacrifice of of so many at the dawn of our nation. The enemy, yes, was great. But the vision that was the United States of America was even greater. We celebrate the land of the free and the home of the brave. But you know, it's our prayer And not just our prayer alone that God bless America, but through revival and through the gospel, that maybe, just maybe, America would bless God again. And so we pray to that end today as we celebrate the 4th of July. I love the 4th of July. I love fireworks. I love cooking out. I love going to the lake on the 4th of July. I love everything about the 4th of July. And uh, I'm reminded, Zach will remember this, we used to um, preach and he would lead worship at a camp for a church out of Nashville. And we would do it every summer and we loved it. We got to know these kids really well. And there's one kid in that youth group named Wayne. And he was that kid, right? Everybody knew who he was. A little different, but everybody loved him. And, and man, we loved hanging out with Wayne. I will never forget going to camp one year. Me and Zach are sort of in the area, and Wayne comes up. And so we, we hug him. Man, Wayne, it's so good to see you. And he goes, hey, Pastor Anthony, guess what I did last 4th of July? By the way. Not a fan of guessing games, right? And so my mind's like, you know, I'm at camp. I'm, I'm going to answer this kid's question. I was thinking in my mind, maybe he was in a boat parade on the lake, right? That's pretty cool. Or, or maybe he saw some grand fireworks show. Or, or, or maybe he went to Independence Hall and saw where the Declaration of Independence, all this was signed. And, a, and he goes, you know what I did? And he held up his hand and he said, I blew my hand off with a firework. And half his hand was gone. I can see hard things. I've got to prepare for it, okay? And so when he held up half of his hand, his whole hand was there last year. Now it's just half a hand. I was this close from passing out. I, could, I just couldn't see it. And then I couldn't unsee it. And the whole time, he's just giggling. He knows exactly what he's doing to me on the inside. Wayne, man, you can't do that to me. I said, I almost passed out, buddy. You cannot do that to me. And he laughed. I said, well, what happened to your hand? He said, well, we got out them fireworks over in my room over there in Nashville. 
And I decided to light one in my room. <laughs> All right. He said, one of my friends yelled out, hey, Wayne, you can't light that in this room. So he had a firework that was maybe close to an equivalent of an M80. And so he just grabbed it and held it for when it went off. And there went half his hand. So here's the whole point of the story. You ready? Number one. Be careful with your fireworks out there. Fireworks are cool, far away, not in your bedroom, all right? And so be careful with your fireworks. And number two, fireworks aren't the only thing, things that could bring damage. Enemies and critics and, and criticism, I would argue at times, even do a greater bit of damage to a person that's oftentimes unseen. So we pick back up today in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 4. If you'll take your Bibles and and you'll turn there. And before we continue in this series, I want to address a question that you might, might have asked one or two times coming into this. With this whole idea of God-sized vision, Nehemiah building a wall, you might come to a place where you go, man, what does this have to do with my life? What difference does Nehemiah and his wall make in my life? You might say to yourself, I'm not a Nehemiah. Nehemiah's busy building a wall. Man, I'm just trying to build my business. Just trying to build my marriage and my my kids and maybe a a future for us. Trying to build my education. I'm not necessarily looking for or soliciting a vision from God. And and what I want to do is say, now wait a second, child of God. Let me teach you something about the God who created you and the God you serve. You ready? He doesn't part you out. He does not part you out. Hey, believer, there's no such thing as a spiritual vision versus a secular vision for your life. Such dichotomy does not exist in the kingdom of God. Of God. God cares for you and all of you. There are no such thing as as, as spiritual versus non-spiritual sections in your life. God cares about every part of your life. You are a spiritual being bought at a price according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. Therefore, everything you put your hand to, everything you were involved in, has spiritual ramifications. Whether it's your vision to build your marriage, or your family, your business, your education, your relationships, your character, God cares about it. He is bought into you in Christ. He is invested. Hey, let me say it this way. He's a blood donor. He's a blood donor in you. And that means this. He cares for all of you and all that you do. And that is why when enemies come against you, when when critics level their criticism against you, God not only cares, but as we see in the story of Nehemiah, God is moved. Students, that means this, that God cares about the classes you take, the people you date, the sports you play, the college or career field that you're going into, Man, he just doesn't care. Man, he wants to be an integral, an important part 
of all of that. Adults, he cares about your career, your workplace, your work ethics, how you treat people, your texts, what you are entertained by, where you go to church and that you go to church. He cares about what you do in public. He cares about what you do in private when no one else is looking. And so today as we look at Nehemiah and ask the question of what, what is in it for me, let's stop the faulty thinking that there are spiritual areas in our lives and then there's non-spiritual areas. Secular visions and spiritual visions. All of it, all of us, belongs to Him and has spiritual ramifications. Now last week we left Nehemiah and the people of God at their wall. The criticism of Sanballat and the gang against the rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem seemingly with Nehemiah, falls on deaf ears. And here's why. Nehemiah refuses to quit and will not stop until the walls and gates are rebuilt. And we know this, that that when and where God is at work, there's an enemy on the move, that spiritual activity breeds spiritual activity. But I'm telling you what we looked at last week, the criticism is fierce. Sanballat and the gang called Nehemiah and the people of God weak, They dismissed them as wishful thinkers. Tobiah would chime in and say they were woefully inept, unable, unqualified to build the wall. These guys left no stone unturned in their criticism against Nehemiah and the people. And yet Nehemiah does something immediately following the criticism that we ought to take note of. That could teach you and me something about how we can handle our enemies, our critics, and criticism. Look at Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Watch this, you ready? Nehemiah prays again. Again, watch what the scripture says here. And this is Nehemiah's prayer. The first thing he does After such harsh criticism, he says, Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their, now love this, because guys, this isn't how you taught to pray in Sunday school. Watch this. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of of the builders. Now remember at this time, Sam Ballad and them, they're screaming over the wall all of these insults. And watch what Nehemiah says. So, we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height for the people, watch this, they worked at it with all of their heart. You know what, as long as Sam Ballad and, and Tobiah and Geshep and others position themselves as enemies of God, Nehemiah is going to pray against their schemes. I, I love how one author put it. He said, After reading Nehemiah's prayer, I guess Nehemiah didn't score too high on that spiritual inventory test in the arena of mercy, did he? Probably didn't score too well there. And you know what? There was little mercy here on Nehemiah's behalf for his enemies. Notice that Nehemiah's first reaction wasn't to defend himself. Can I tell you what you and I do all too often? When criticism comes around, enemies stand against us is we waste way too much time and energy trying to defend ourselves. 
He doesn't do it. He, he didn't create a hashtag and he wasn't out there posting on social media. There wasn't an angry email sent. There's no rage text. There's no pouting. Nehemiah prayed. And here's where we camp out today. One thought, one theme, and that is this. Prayer positions God at the center of your attention, not your enemies or critics. Why does Nehemiah pray? Because what he's doing is he's putting God at the center of his attention and his affections, and he's kicking his enemies and his critics out of there. In his book, Visioneering, Andy Stanley made this, this note, and I love it. He says this, our natural response to criticism is to defend ourselves. This is especially true when our vision is under attack. We are tempted to begin a dialogue with our critics or with those parroting their criticisms. Consequently, we waste energy and thoughts trying to answer questions for people who are often not really interested in answers. Without realizing it, our focus begins to shift. Instead of being vision-centered, watch this, we become critic-centered. Man, ain't that true? How many times you told off your enemy up here? And, we, and we're not careful. We become critic-centered instead of vision-centered. And so that's why prayer must play a vital role in a visionary's life. Prayer puts God's vision, his mission-centered stage and forces our enemies and our critics to exit stage left. I'm going to tell you, church, when enemies, when critics and their criticism become the center of your attention, your vision then dies at their feet. Your vision will die at their feet. And so let's, let's cue a terrifying trend. I read an excerpt from a book that said that our attention span is dropping rapidly each passing year. In 2000, before this digital revolution, our, our, di our, our, our attention span was about 12 seconds long. Some of y'all, that's way overshooting, right? 12 seconds long. Guys, that means this. We don't have a lot of room to work with. But over the past few years since 2000, you, you know what our attention span is now? Eight seconds. Eight seconds. You know who beats us? This guy. You know what this is? A goldfish. Guess what his attention span is? Nine seconds. Like, yeah, so we're losing to a goldfish. And the odds aren't in our favor. As there are literally thousands of apps and devices intentionally engineered to steal what? Your attention. And with it, your money. And he writes this, and I love this. He says, a reminder, your phone doesn't actually work for you. You pay for it, yes, but it works for a multi-billion dollar corporation in California, not for you. And listen to what he says. You're not the customer. You're the product. It's your attention that's for sale, along with your peace of mind. And if that's what's behind a phone, 
Church, can I remind you that your enemies, your critics, are not looking to buy, but to steal your attention away from God and with it, your peace of mind. That's what they're after. And Nehemiah, he's not having it. Man, I love Nehemiah's prayers. Now, there's some biblical scholars that you'll read that try to excuse away his prayer, find fault in it, but I just simply disagree. What we find in Nehemiah chapter 4 is a sincere prayer from Nehemiah's heart to his father. It is raw. It is unrehearsed. Man, it's just real. Hey, and by the way, can I just, can I just challenge you? It's okay that before your father, for at times your prayers, when it seems like the whole world's closing in on you, it's okay for them to be raw and unrehearsed. It's okay for them to be real and they don't have to be all pretty and tidy. You see, God can sift through all of that. Nehemiah's prayer, it's similar to what is called imprecatory psalms in the Old Testament. Imprecatory psalms in the Bible. You see, such psalms invited God to bring his judgment and his wrath against the enemy's plans and the enemies of God. Well, what they simply were in the Bible in the Old Testament, they were raw, unrehearsed, and real prayers. In fact, David, who's coined as a man after God's own heart, wrote a lot of these out, prayed a lot of these. In fact, we just see one small one right here in Psalm 510. Declare them guilty, David cries, against his enemies, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. Man, David's not praying unicorns and skittles over these guys. He's praying God to come against them and their plans. And catch what Nehemiah does here in Nehemiah chapter 4. He vents to God. And then he allows God to sort out his next steps. He vents to God in prayer. And then just trusts God to work out the next steps he's to take. By the way, those next steps are clear in verse 5. Those next steps to rebuild the wall and to work at it with all of your heart. And that's just what they did. And I want you to catch this. Nehemiah learned the discipline of reacting in prayer, which enabled him to respond with a plan. Nehemiah, upon the criticism, his first reaction is to pray. He vents to God. And by doing so, it allowed Nehemiah to respond with a plan. You see, prayer positions God at the center of your attention and your affections, not your enemies or critics. You see, Jesus has given us a little teaching on, on what we are to do as believers when, when enemies rise up, when criticism is launched at us. And he says this in Matthew chapter 5, in that great Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are you when people insult you. By the way, the word blessed that Jesus used time and time again in the Sermon on the Mount, the people before him had never heard that word used about them. They thought it was unattainable. But he says, blessed. Are you, when people watch this, insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds 
of evil against you because of me. And then watch what Jesus says. Let's up the ante here. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. When was the last time somebody came after you started running their mouth that you felt blessed? Hey, when was the last time you rejoiced and you were glad about it? You know, that can only happen in the face of an enemy or a critic if Jesus is at the dead center of your attention and your affection. You know how he gets there? Through prayer. Nehemiah teaches us a little bit about that, doesn't he? In fact, Jesus would go on in Matthew chapter 5 and teach a revolutionary message in this famed Sermon on the Mount. And this is where I got issues. Watch this, you ready? In Matthew 5, 43 and 44, you have heard it was said, Jesus said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you what, to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you? Man, how is it that you love an enemy? Is it even possible? Here's how you love an enemy. Number one, you love them by not hating them. Hating an enemy is an easy way out. A lost person can hate an enemy. How do you love your enemy and pray for them? First of all, you, you don't hate them. Number two, you don't become them. You don't become them. And number three, how do you love an enemy? You pray for them. Can, can I tell you what I've learned even though I don't like doing it? It's impossible for me to hate somebody I'm praying for. I can't do it. It's impossible for me to hate someone that I'm praying for. Hey, by all means, like Nehemiah does, pray against their schemes and their plans, but for God's sake, pray for their soul. Pray for their soul. You know, Jesus not only preached about loving his enemies and praying for them. He practiced it. We get a glimpse in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, of Jesus in the most enduring, torturous type of death he could die. And yet it was even there, surrounded by enemies, that Jesus would cry this out from the cross. Watch this. Father, forgive them. They know what they are doing. It's one thing to say, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. In Matthew chapter 5, on a beautiful hillside on the side of the Lake of Galilee, and it's another thing to be in Jerusalem with crowds of people shouting and cursing at your name, spitting on you, pinned to a tree, bleeding every bit of blood you have left in your body to the ground. And yet he did it. This morning, on the eve of freedom celebration, there are many of us in this room who maybe for the first time need to pray for our enemies. Now there may be times you've prayed against them. We've asked God to do that which is unjust. 
where you've pleaded for God to respond to them in a way that you never hope he responds to you. But maybe for the first time today, you need to pray for your enemy and believer, no matter the injustice done, free yourself and free them by forgiving them. In Matthew chapter 18, I think Peter probably struggles as much with this teaching as I do. He heard it there on the hillside. And listen to this question he posed to Jesus. And I, I preached about this passage a year ago, but let me just remind you of it. Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Man, isn't that a great question? Like, it says turn the cheeks, but four in, you're out of cheeks, right? And so what do we do in that kind of situation? And he goes like this. As many as seven times, Peter says, now look, Peter's showing off here. To a rabbi, the thought of forgiving someone for the same sin seven times seemed righteous and pious and I mean, just really the best. Of the, only those rabbis could do that. Peter's showing off here. And then Jesus comes in and just, man, takes the spotlight away. I love it. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, I'm not good at math, but that's about 490 times because I asked Siri earlier, and here's the deal. That's a big number. And you know what that means? That means at times we have to forgive different offenses, 490 different ones. But can I tell you the harder part of that is when you have to forgive somebody 490 different times for the same offense and the same hurt that they've leveled against you. And, and I'll be honest, just talking to my flesh here for a moment, somebody sins against me 490 times, I'm quoting this passage, and at 491, I mean, I'm hitting them, right? Like, like, I'm just taking them out. But Jesus really wasn't fixing a number, was he? He was trying to fix us. When enemies come, not to be consumed by them, but to free us from our enemies. So today, would you free yourself from your enemies and your critics by praying for them and forgiving them and putting Jesus back at the center of your attention and your affections? Would you do that today? You know, oftentimes, and this was a little bit more when I was younger, I would hear this saying. Anytime I, I went to a bank and signed a paper, somebody would go, hey, put your John Hancock right here. And I was like, what does that even mean? That is just so weird. And you study it a little bit more because of the 56 signatures on the Declaration of Independence, there's one that stands out above the rest. It's prominent. It's in large, legible type. And it's the name John Hancock. He would be the first to sign it. And he did so in such a large, legible script. And here's the reason why. So that the king of England could read his name without even having to use his glasses. Man, isn't that good? John Hancock wanted to be very clear where his allegiance lay. His commitment to his country was so clear that King George III had offered amnesty to all who would cease in the fighting 
except for John Hancock. Today, in the face of any and all enemies, we make it clear where our allegiance lies, where our affections are aligned, and who it is that sits at the center of our attention. And there is only one who's worthy to sit there, and his name is Jesus. And so to our enemies, we pray against your schemes, we pray for your soul, and hey, Samballot, I forgive you. Hey, Tobiah, in my life, I forgive you. Hey, Geshem, I'm going to pray against those schemes, bro. I'm going to pray for your soul that Jesus will get a hold of you. But I forgive you. Who's the enemy today? Even on a 4th of July holiday weekend that you need freed from and that you need to free by loving them and praying for them. By forgiving them and positioning Jesus back at the center of the attention and affection in your life. Let's pray together, can we? Thank you again for checking out our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date on our services. If you'd like to give to support our ministry, you can do that at our website. That's connectchurchpf.com. Hope you enjoyed and have a great week.